Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Write its truths on our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we've looked at this, the third of the five warning passages in the book of Hebrews, we recognize that the warnings are given to the gathered, the corporate assembly. And in any church gathering, there are the wheat and there are the tares, there are the sheep and there are the goats, there are the true and there are the false. And the question then is, well, who will heed these warnings? Obviously, the elect, God's people, will heed the warnings. And what we've learned is that God will use these means to achieve his ends. The means are the warnings, and his sheep will hear his voice and follow him. We saw last time a number of things, and we won't go into all of that except to say that there's now a contrast in verse 9. What we have before are those and they, and now there's a switch in verse 9 to your and beloved. The writer is now addressing the true Christians that are in the gathered assembly, and he uses words like your and beloved. And here we see the writer's confidence regarding the genuine Christian. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, in what way? In this severe warning. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, things that accompany salvation. The Holy Spirit provides inward assurance. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 tells us this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And yet there's the outward action of the saints, the people of God, and that's what is now in view in these verses. It's the outworking of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit within. Galatians would refer to this as the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the fact that the Holy Spirit is present in the life. That being the case, there will be fruit. By their fruit you'll know them, Jesus said. And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. All the nine fruit that are listed there. And that's what's being related to us in verse 10. The outward working of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit within. Verse 10, for God is not unjust. It goes without saying, except it's worth saying, God is just, and therefore he's not unjust. Everything he does is just. He has never fallen off the throne of justice by making a decision, coming up with a choice and a law that is not just. Everything he does is just, flowing out of the fact that he is just himself. He is just, all he does is just. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. I've uh, checked with just about every other English translation at this point, and uh, the word overlook, as we see it in the ESV, is not found basically anywhere else. Everywhere else, it's forget. God is not unjust so as to forget your work. So, in other translations, forget is used rather than overlook. The NIV, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. NASB, for God is not unjust so as to forget 
your work. God will not forget your work. As you look through the book of Hebrews, two things are apparent. God will not remember your sins as a believer. I will remember their sins no more, is the promise of Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12. And here we have the promise in verse 10 of chapter 6. God will not forget your works. So God will not remember your sins, but he will not forget your works. One of the things I had to work through in my mind was something of a dilemma or something that was inscrutable to me till I really thought it through. And that's this, if, or rather since, God is all-knowing. I'm sure you know the technical word for that theologically, omniscience, omni, meaning all, science, meaning knowledge. Omniscience means all-knowing, all-knowledge. God is all-knowing. He knows the future exhaustively. He's always known it. He's never learned anything. He's aware and he knows exhaustively past, present, and future. He declares the end from the beginning. He doesn't have to wait 60% of the time and say, okay, it's looking like this. I'm going to, this as an option. It's much more likely than the other things that could happen. No, he declares the end from the beginning. He's the Lord of history and he is reigning now. This is not plan B. This is plan A according to all that he has decreed. He is working all things after the counsel of his will. We're not privy to all that God knows, of course, and we only have in the, uh, with the unveiling in time of his decree. But God has decreed from all eternity what will come to pass. That's just who God is. He knows the end from the beginning. He doesn't have to get to the end to know the end. Before there is a beginning, he knows where everything's going. Which is why Jesus is the lamb slain, not merely 2,000 years ago, but from the foundation of the world. It was decided in the courts of heaven amongst the adorable members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Son would come into the world and die in the place of sinners on the cross. The cross was not an accident. It was foretold not only in the scriptures regarding in time, but in eternity, he was the lamb slain. It's as if the council meeting of the Godhead took place and the Father said, we'll know that man will fall and we'll need a savior. And the savior, the second person of the Trinity said, said I will go. And it's as if the Father said, write that in the minutes, lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Praise the Lord. That's just the God who is. I love the fact that he's not just responding to crisis. Oh, what's happened? Oh, what are we going to do? Let's have a think tank meeting. Let's synergize. You come up with any ideas, Michael? How about you, Gabriel? Hey, Gabe, come on. No, uh, he's Lord of history and he's never learned anything and he is all-knowing, which has implications. How can he say, I won't remember something, when he's all-knowing? You ever thought through that? You ever thought of that as a query? I couldn't see for a long time how those two realities could coexist. What I did was just trusted the Lord that over time he would open the word to me. And that's what we do. We trust when we don't understand. Obviously, God is not confused when we are. He is not the author of confusion. He's not confused himself. And there is certainly a very easy way to make these two things live with each other. What is clear is that these are two realities clearly proclaimed by Scripture. He knows everything, and yet he will not remember some things like our sins. So here's how I worked it through. Knowing that man is made in the image of God, there's something about us that is like God, except in a very limited way. We are finite, he's infinite. But one thing we know about the human brain is it records everything. You may not feel that's the case as you progress in life. Did it record anything yesterday? All the events of life are somewhere in your brain. The brain is a supercomputer. 
everything is stored there in the brain's memory. However, there's a part of the brain, very much in layman's terms, I believe it's at the front of the brain, and it's called recall. You ever heard of that? Yes, but you don't recall. <laughs> That's, there's probably a technical name for that, but I'm not aware of that. I'm a layman in these things, and recall works for me. So, every person's name you've ever heard is stored somewhere in your brain. Think about that. I think we can grasp that concept. But somehow, in the middle of a conversation, you're thinking of a certain person, you see their face, and you can't remember their name. You ever had that experience? It's not that it's not there in your brain, it's just that your recall isn't bringing it to the right place of your brain so that you can articulate. And you think, his name is, his name is, and two hours later you remember, David Elvington, that's it, David, what, how come I didn't know? It was there all along, you just couldn't recall it. Well, think about that and then think of the fact that God has all knowledge and when he says, I will remember your sins no more, it's, again, in very human terms, this kind of a message. Though he knows those sins, though he could bring them up in your presence, he's decided, I will never do it. I will never bring up your sins in my presence. Though I could, though I know them all, I will remember your sins no more. When you get to heaven, isn't that a wonderful thing? I mean, you've got friends, but would they still be your friends if they knew everything about you? And God knows everything about you, and he set his love on you. It's not like when you blow it, God says, well, that's it. If I knew that was in your heart, I would never have taken you on as a project. I've been surprised by me. Have you ever been surprised by you? I think, uh, I'm this amazing Christian now. I've, you know, read my Bible and I've, uh, you know, I know a few things. And suddenly as you're driving in traffic, someone pulls in front of you and not... Uh, uh, it's not the case that comes, what comes out of your mouth is, to God be the glory. <laughs> Something else comes out and you think, I had no idea that was still in there. God is not saying, I'm shocked, John, I am so shocked. God has never been shocked. <laughs> he took you on with full knowledge. That's great news. So you don't have to hide things from him because you can't. He knows everything, and if you confess your sins, it's not like that's when he finds out about them. No, when you confess your sins, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. So, in that scenario, when you get to heaven as a Christian, your sins are not going to be broadcast. He's not going to bring them up. He could, but he says, I will not. I will not. So God is infinitely wise. He's a spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. He doesn't have a physical brain as such. He doesn't have eyes, and yet he sees everything. He doesn't have physical ears, and yet he hears everything. He doesn't have a physical brain, and yet he knows everything. And his promise is, your sins I will remember no more. In other words, he knows all the information possible exhaustively and his promise is he'll never bring them up in our presence. That's a choice on God's part and it's his covenant with us. It'll never be an issue again. Now, some people hear that and say, oh, I've got a license to sin now. No, no, if, if, if you understand what God does in the heart of the regenerate, the believer, they don't want to live in sin. They may stumble into sin, but they don't want to live there. In Romans 6, we have the answer. Shall we sin then that grace may abound? And the answer is, well, not really. It's God forbid. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? We've got a new nature now, now that we're in Christ. So God knows our sins intimately and exhaustively. He'll never bring them up. That, I think, helps me. I hope it helps you. So know those two things. God will not remember our sins and he will not forget your works, which raises the question, what is the place of works in the life of the Christian? Go 
in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter, five, uh, chapter 2. We were reading it earlier in the service. Ephesians chapter 2. Though I'm very tempted, we're going to go to verse 8 rather than verse 1 and read through. Verse 8. Describing how God saves and how God has saved these Ephesian Christians and by extension anyone he saves. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. What are works? Works are human actions, things we do. If you help someone, that's a work. If you evangelize, that's a work. If you pray, that's a work. These are things we do. And what Paul does here, and the Holy Spirit through him does, as this is inspired writing, is tell us how we're saved. And it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Paul destroys all notions of salvation by works. Nothing of works in your salvation. We're saved by the grace of God, which is received through faith. Works play no part at all. Now, verse 10 tells us there are things that God wants us to do. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. Now that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has things for you to do, places for you to go, things for you to do in the kingdom of God. But none of the things you do contribute in any way to your salvation. Your salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see... If you're in the kingdom because of your works, you have something to boast about. I'm here because I helped, over time, 403 elderly ladies cross roads. I'm here. Well, how come you're here? Well, I did this, I did that. You know, there's going to be none of that in heaven. It's not as if boasting is kept to a minimum. Okay, Tony, I hear you. Keep it down. We're not supposed to talk about that. Keep it down, this boasting. It's totally excluded that no one should boast. It's by the grace of God that we're saved. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a pretty good person, a wretch like me. So all of that is true. Believers do good works, but works play no role in how they receive salvation. It's not, look at the text, not as a result of works. There it is. Not as a result of works. Then there's the question, well, what's the... This, in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Well, again, I wrote about this in my first book, and in real quick language, the this refers to all in the preceding clause. The grace, the salvation, and the faith. All of this is not your own doing. None of it. The grace is God's. The salvation is God's. The faith is God's, and all of it, this, is the gift of God, not by your own doing. We can't even boast about the fact that God did just about everything, and we were the ultimate trigger point. We had faith, and that's why we're in the kingdom. No, this, all of the faith you have, is the gift of God, as well as the salvation, as well as the grace. God supplied the faith, the grace, and the salvation, which is why there's no reason to boast. Well, I can't say I'm boasting about helping elderly ladies cross roads, but at least I supplied the faith. No, you didn't. God gave you faith that you then exercised. And all the glory for your salvation goes to Him. Amen. Amen. It is the gift of God. All right. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. I say this a lot, but it bears repeating. This is the gospel. Verse... 28 of chapter 3 of Romans, Romans chapter 3, Paul's summing up what he's been declaring for quite some time in uh, chapter 3, verse 21 onwards. Verse 28, for we hold, we maintain that one is justified by faith apart from works 
of the law. Works of the law refer to works in conformity to the law. We're not justified by works of the law. We're justified apart from works of the law. Again, it's in total uh, harmony with what we've read in Ephesians, as you'd expect in your Bibles. The word alone is not in there, but this is a verse that teaches justification by faith alone because the alone in the statement is not by works. By faith alone, we're justified. So this is a statement of sola fide in Latin, justification by faith, because we hold, we maintain that one is justified by faith apart from the things we do, apart from works of the law, apart from going to the feast, offering the sacrifices, doing the thing required of us, apart from our actions, we're justified by faith. As we read on in chapter 4, Paul's argument is this. This is not a new thing. This is the way anyone gets in the kingdom. It's not like in the Old Testament, as we call it, people were justified by keeping the law, now there's a new thing going on. No, exhibit A in determining this truth is Abraham. That's how he got in. Exhibit B is David. These are big guns in the kingdom of God. Abraham didn't get in by his actions, but by faith alone. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And David said, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. He got in the same way. And that's why around the throne of God in heaven, you and I, with the Old Testament saints, will be singing the same songs. There won't be an Old Testament saint service and a New Testament saint service. They sing about lambs and bullocks and we sing about Jesus. No, all of us will be saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. For he redeemed us by his blood. Praise the Lord. I could get excited. Verse 4. Romans 4, verse 4. And we, here we have an amazing contrast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you ever want to talk to someone about how we're saved, those are terrific verses to go to. And perhaps this is as clear, or perhaps even clearer, verses 4 and 5. And it says, Now to the one who works. These are the people who work. And an analogy from the business world is supplied here. When someone works and they are paid, what they, are then, what they then have is not considered as a gift, but as what is due. It's wages. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. If you work for someone, and you're told, and you have an agreement, uh, there's a job assignment, and it's going to mean these many hours, and it's going to cost you $200 to have the thing done. When you've completed the task, Someone owes you $200 because that was the agreement. And when you are paid the $200, you don't say, oh, how merciful you are. They actually owe you that. And there are court systems in place to make sure you are paid because you are owed that. That's the analogy of verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. What we have in verse 5 is the exact contrast and to the one who does not work. In the original, it reads like this, to the working one, verse 4, verse 5, to the not working one. Same phrase, just an insertion of the word not. It's the exact opposite. To the working one, verse 4, to the not working one. All right, this guy who doesn't work, he's done nothing. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Not justify godly people who over time make themselves godly. No, ungodly people who do something, believe. Where does their faith come from? From God. But to the one who does not work. Actions are not in play, but that person who's not working has not worked, is not working, but simply believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Abraham is exhibit A, verses 1, 2, and 3. And then verse 6 onward is exhibit B, David. David also speaks of the blessing. He sins, he should have in his account a mark of his sin, but instead 
The sins were marked out on Christ rather than David. Verse 6, also, as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, look at this, apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not count his sin. He sins, but it's not counted towards him because it was counted towards Christ on the cross and he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Titus 3.5, I'll just quote it. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. I've been blessed over the years by the writings of Jerry Bridges. You might have heard of him. And here's a quote. The problem with self-righteousness is that it seems almost impossible to recognize in ourselves. We will own up to almost any other sin, but not the sin of self-righteousness, When we have this attitude, though, we deprive ourselves of the joy of living in the grace of God because, you see, here's the quote I want you to hear, the part of it, grace is only for sinners. That's profound. Grace is only for sinners. Because salvation is by grace, by definition, you cannot qualify for it. It's unmerited favor. We all know the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is wonderful and grace is even more wonderful. If you're a subject of a king and you've committed high treason against the king and he has mercy on you, he lets you live. He didn't have to. That's mercy. You don't get the punishment you deserve. That's what mercy is. Grace is... Not only does the king say, I'm not going to take your life because you defied me. I'm going to welcome you to my banqueting table anytime you like. Come to the palace, eat royal food. That's what God has done for us. He's given us both mercy and grace. And it's by grace you have been saved. Not of works. You see, imagine being on the outside of the palace and thinking, if I really work for it, I'll be considered a royal. Try that. I'll be considered part of the royal family. Try that. No. But the king comes from the palace, looks you in the eye, and says, I choose you to be my child by adoption. Come on in. That's the gospel. We must grasp the meaning of these two biblical words. And you have... The notes as handed out. Two words. Justification and sanctification. Some people say you you shouldn't do that in church. You need to just uh, talk about things where people are. Listen, these are words God wanted us to know. Justification is a Bible word inspired by God and God expects preachers to say it and tell folk what it means. And just as it's Very important when someone's learning to drive the car, they know things like the steering wheel and brakes. You might say, well, no, 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 no. They don't need to know about brakes. Don't get technical with us. No, if you're going to have a safe ride, you better learn some things about the car and where to put gas and where not to put gas. Amen. Justification and sanctification. I trust as you leave today, your heart will soar as we go into these words. We can make a distinction between the body and the head of a man, and he suffers no loss. But if if there's a separation, the man will be dead. If we separate the man's head from his body, he, he dies. The head and the body must stay together for life to continue. Similarly, though we can make a distinction between justification and sanctification, we must never separate the two. But we distinguish between the two. Justification, what is that? It's a word that in Greek means to declare righteous. It doesn't mean to make righteous, it means to declare righteous. And it's a courtroom word. I'm no longer reading the notes, so if you'd look up, that would be great. It's a courtroom word. It's the judge saying, you are guilty, but someone else has paid the fine, and you can go free 
And I declare you guiltless because of the work of someone else on your behalf. It's a legal word. It's not a feeling. You may feel justified, and that's great, but what happens when you don't? What happens on Tuesday when you feel abandoned by God? Justification is the legal document you have as a believer that forever and ever and ever and ever you'll never face God's judgment because you've been justified in his court. He says, not guilty. I reckon you righteous with the righteousness of my son. It's an eternal thing. You cannot grow in justification. On the other hand, sanctification is very different. Sanctification is that which is set apart to God. And you and I can be more and more sanctified in our Christian life. Hopefully we're growing towards Christ-likeness. And hopefully you're growing in your Christian walk. But as great as you get in your sanctification, it will never give you a better standing with God than justification has given you. Never. Forever and ever, clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ at the moment that you believe, you cannot grow in that. 8,000 years from now, 80,000 years from now, you cannot add to your justification. You are justified in the sight of God now and forever. He never takes it back. It's your legal papers in heaven. You have it. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The moment you believe, God declares, Hear this, angels. Hear this, all the courts. Satan, you're on the outside of the court. You're not even in this court. I declare this one justified, now and forever. Case dismissed. That's it, forever. Now, the enemy will try to say, uh, well, come to my court. Uh, 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 I've got this against you. Do you remember your conscience? It's screaming. You remind your conscience and the devil that you've been to God's court and the moment you believe, God justified you now and forever. The devil will try to get you into his court. Don't go. In God's court, you've already had the trial. It's over. You're justified now and forever. The justified person is someone who God has declared right in his sight. Now, though in themselves, they're not yet inherently righteous. But they believe that God justifies the ungodly. While you're still... As bad as you were, except God has now come to live on the inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit, there's no growth in holiness. The moment you believe, God gives you the Son of God's righteousness as a gift. And God says, on that basis, my Son's righteousness, I declare you just in my sight forever. 1 Corinthians 1.30, He's made unto us righteousness. Jesus is your righteousness. The devil comes and says, but look what you did. What you should say is, look what he did. But you did this, but he did that. You got a problem with that? Go talk to him. God is the one who's justified. God is the God who justifies. Hear this from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. No degree of sanctification will add to your justification. That's not often how we work. We think, well, I've had a really good week this week. I, I feel closer to God. And Do you realize you might feel closer to God, but your standing with God is every bit as it was the moment you believed. It's wonderful that you've done the things that you're doing in your sanctification, but they haven't added to your justification. Some people, some Christians, have the idea that justification is something like probation. All right, you're in the prison, God lets you out, but he's watching you. And one slip and you're back in there. No, you're out, you're forever out because of the work of someone else. Hear this. Every false gospel blends justification and sanctification. Blends them. There's some degree of sanctification needed for justification. That's a false gospel. It has many names. It takes many forms. In the Galatian church, it was Jesus plus circumcision. 
Jesus plus keeping the law. Name the Christian cult that doesn't get the gospel right. This is where they go wrong. Every false gospel blends justification and sanctification. We should never separate them, but we should distinguish between them. Think that through and you'll think, I believe that's a profound statement. The Protestant Reformation was not about the necessity of grace. Both sides of the aisle believed that grace was necessary. The issue was the sufficiency of grace. Yeah, you need grace, but you also need the sacraments. You need the priests. You need this. You need that. You need this. You need baptism. You need whatever it is, but you need more than Christ alone. You need Mary and the saints. You need more than simply believing that God justifies the ungodly. That's a legal fiction. I tell you what, it's no legal fiction because it was absolutely real that our sins were laid on him. And it's absolutely real that his righteousness is given to those who believe. It's real as real is. To quote Jerry Bridges again, because we have a natural tendency to look within ourselves for the basis of God's approval or disapproval, we must make a conscious daily effort to look outside ourselves to the righteousness of Christ, then to stand in the present reality of our justification. Works are never the basis of our salvation. It's by grace, and grace is only for sinners. You never live a life whereby you say, this week... I was Mr. Christian, I was Miss Christian, I was Mrs. Christian. I lived the Christian life. And I've got much greater access to the Lord's table because of my actions. No, you come as a sinner every time. And I do. We come as sinners in and of ourselves, but clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, now and forever. He is my standing. It's what Luther called an alien justitium. They quoted Latin a lot. An alien righteousness. It's from outside of us. When we speak of aliens, we're saying they're from another world somewhere. If you believe in that. But an alien righteousness is, it's not found in me, it's found in Christ. It's outside of me, it's imputed to me, it's given to me as a gift. I'm clothed with something I didn't inherit, something I worked for. He worked for it in his life for me, and has given it me as a gift. Everyone who's justified will be glorified, will make it to heaven. No one falls through the cracks. Remember the golden chain of redemption, Romans 8.30. These, or those whom he justified, he also glorified. So certain is Paul that this is the case. He writes of glorification in the past tense. What's glorification? Glorification is when we stand before God in heaven with nothing more to be altered. We're like Christ as much as finite beings can be like Christ. We are fully glorified in that state. And these or those whom he justified, he glorified, is a statement that everyone who's justified makes it to glorification. Because God knows who are justified. He doesn't lose any of his true sheep along the way. They may falter, they may fall, but he brings them back. All the sheep come home, wagging their tails behind them, all the way to heaven. All of them. Jesus has never lost a true sheep. Never. If you're a true sheep, you know. I don't know this election and predestination and calling. and Okay, okay. Do you know you're justified? Do you know that you've believed in Christ and he is your righteousness and on the basis of what he's done for you, you're justified in his sight? Do you know that? Yes, you can go forward and backwards in the chain. That means he called me, he predestined me, he, he, he set his love on me in eternity past, and I will be glorified. I can go forward and backwards because God doesn't lose anyone along the chain. What shall we say to these things? Some Christians say, that's the next verse, by the way, after verse 30 of Romans 8. Well, we shouldn't talk about it. It's controversial. No, God wants you to know this so that in the trial of your life, God is the one who justifies and you know it. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect, he says. God is the one who justifies. So, what about good works? 
God doesn't need your good works, to quote Martin Luther, your neighbor does. Look at this, he'll not forget your works. But more than that, he's promised to reward them. You're kidding, right? No, no, he'll reward your works. So he'll not bring up your sins, but he will reward your works. But works are never the basis of your salvation. No, but they're, they're, they're the reason why you're going to get rewards in heaven. And what I'm sure you'll do is when you get those rewards, you'll lay them back down at the feet of Christ. You did it all. Go with me to Matthew chapter 24. Well, actually, that's good, but let's go to Matthew 25. <laughs> When we understand the role of works, we realize this. The truly justified person will produce good works, but works are not the basis of their standing with God. Look at verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was a hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger and naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is in full accord with all I've been saying because the truly justified person has a regenerate heart and he loves the people of God. When he did not do it to the least of these, my brothers. Let's go back to Hebrews. You remember that? We were in Hebrews. Well, it's been quite an excursion, but I think it helps us to understand what we're now reading in Hebrews as we go back there. Genesis, Exodus, Hebrews. Here we go. Verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we, sure, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook, to forget your work, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. The writer's confidence has its source, has its foundation in the lifestyle of the true believer. Keep your place in chapter 6. Go to chapter 10. Because he describes what these have already gone through that he's writing to. Verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened... You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion, notice that word, on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They'd been through a lot. They've been through much hardship, public insult, persecution, confiscation of property, yet they were still standing. They'd shown great courage and great compassion. And they were still at it, back to chapter 6. As you still do. You've done all this. God won't forget the work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints. As you still do. They were still at it. You've shown love. Now keep doing that. One of the reasons we know we're children of God, according to 1 John, is we love the brothers. We love the brethren. 
That's John 3.14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Christians love Christians. Is that true of you? Well, as sometimes we think, uh, I'm not so sure, but the Lord puts his love, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and we love people we would never have found anything in common with outside of Christ. But I've found in my travels across the world, when I meet a true Christian, they're my brother, they're my sister, and we'll die for each other if we have to. We may not have met more than eight seconds before, but there's this kindred spirit. We're family. Verse 11 of Hebrews 6. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. In other words, keep going. Stay zealous. Stay earnest. Stay diligent. Don't rest on your laurels. Ken Hughes writes, Perseverance in loving service is clear evidence of a sure hope. Let me spell it out. Works are the fruit and not the root of our salvation. And perseverance is evidence of regeneration. We keep going because we didn't start the thing and he's the one who did and he will keep it going. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. Dull of hearing, one translation reads, literally it means sluggish in the ears. (laughs) If you find that you're not really hearing like you used to hear, check your heart, not your hearing. So don't be like the sluggish that are out there, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In In terms of imitation, in context, it's speaking of Abraham. That's going to become apparent as we go to the next verses. Be like uh, faithful Abraham who persevered, who was long-suffering. Let me wrap this up. All those who are justified will be sanctified or else they were never justified. Works do not contribute in any way to our salvation, but they're the fruit of a life. And so we should always leave the decision on who's the wheat and who's the tares up to God. There's a parable of Jesus about that. The reapers are the angels at the second coming of Christ. They're going to sort that out. The good news is we don't have to. So we're not to judge, but we can be fruit inspectors. And being fruit inspectors, we can say, you know what, it's concerning that this particular person has heard the word of the Lord, they know the word of the Lord, and there's nothing in them that wants to do it. That should cause us to have alarm bells going off in our heads if that's true of us. What do you know of what the Bible says to do that you're not interested in doing? That's an alarm bell. Now, the true Christian may be struggling to do what God has told them to do, but they actually deep down, want to do it. They want to do his will. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's the overflow of love. So where do works fit in? I want to shock you. In the end, you will be saved by works. But none of them will be yours. The person and the work of Jesus alone. And when he saves you, he changes your heart to love what you wouldn't have been able to love before. Some people were born into sectors of society where they hate a certain group, a certain race, a certain skin color. That all is erased in Christ. And he gives you a love for people. You think, I'm not sure my mom and dad would like this. They hate these people, but I love them. I'm a Christian. I love them. They're my brothers. They're my sisters. That's what God does. What this world needs is not laws of the land, but revival in the heart, to take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that now beats to know Christ. That's what America needs. That's what Phoenix needs. That's what we all need. Has it happened in your heart? It happens as we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
God, knowing that treasonous rebels were abounded, so loved this world, he sent his son into the world. What an amazing story. To be born of a virgin, miraculously, to live a sinless life, tempted by the devil at all points, yet without sin, living a flawless, perfect life. And then on the cross, absorbing in himself all the sins of all those who would ever believe, our sins were laid on him. And he died for our sins in our place as our substitute. And three days later, he rose from the dead, ladies and gentlemen, and is now at the place of all authority in the universe. What a story! It's not like he's head of Denmark. He's head of all things. He's head of the universe. And one day Putin will stand before him. Every president, every king, every queen, every despot, everyone will stand, the great and the small, those who lived in the palace and those who lived under the freeway. Everyone will stand and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, this Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. That's the one we're dealing with. And he's the one who says, repent and believe the good news of what I've done for sinners and you'll be included forever in full, full forgiveness and given a righteous robe you did nothing to achieve for by yourself. But I did it. I lived the life you should have lived. I died the death you should have died. And if you believe in me, my death will count as your death. You'll pass from death to life and you'll have a righteousness that you cannot grow in. It's perfect the moment you got it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace is not like peace in the Middle East. You read it on a Thursday. Peace broken out in the Middle East. What they've basically said is we're not going to fire our rockets at each other over the weekend. But when God gives you peace, in Hebrew it's shalom. It's a settled peace. No more hostility from God, ever. You're accepted in the beloved. But don't I have to? No. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should be. Well, don't I have to do stuff to stay in? No, you do stuff because you are in. Don't I have to? Don't I have to? No, he did it all. It's finished. It's done. He did it. Christianity is the exclusive, unique, true religion in the world. The religion used in the right sense. It's unique. Everything else is do, do, do. Jesus said, Done. Forever, it's finished. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you put in our hearts. There are things you've got for us to do, works you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, and yet none of them adds to our justification. We're saved by grace, and what we do, we do out of gratitude. We're thankful people. You've changed our hearts. And we want to be zealous for good works. We want to do what we've done and keep doing it and do more. But none of it is because we have to to try and gain your approval. We have your approval in Christ. Write this on our hearts. It's so not what we go to in our minds. That's why we need to continually hear the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We thank you in Jesus' name.